Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today we're going to be continuing our mini-series on the 18th century. Background to this is that I will be taking my exams in a little bit over two weeks, which every single time I say that, my heart skips a beat and I start to panic. But it's true. So very soon I'm going to be taking my exam and I'm switching from reading books to doing a lot more consolidation. Part of that is I'm asking myself sample questions that I may be asked on the orals exam and trying to answer them. With this mini-series, I'm returning to the center of my research and interest, the 18th century, and asking a bunch of big questions about it, one per general topic. And I have a doozy for you. Uh, today, I'm going to be discussing the Industrial Revolution. It's probably going to be the easiest question for me to answer if it's actually posed to me in the exam room because I, I know a lot about it. And I know a lot about it because it forms the real hinge for me of what's important about British history in the 18th and 19th centuries. It's the reason why I'm studying this small island off the coast of Eurasia uh, in the time period that I'm studying it. I'm not an Anglophile. I, I lived in Britain for a little while, but I don't have any, you know, special deep-seated BBC obsession with Doctor Who and stuff like that. I'm curious about Britain in the 18th and 19th centuries because I think that what happens there sets the course for modernity. Both in the good things that we associate with modernity, like personal freedom, material prosperity, variety but also the bad stuff that we associate with modernity, uh, global inequality, uh, oppression, and increasingly environmental degradation. For me, this is about a shift in world history, maybe even a shift in geological history, when humans break the bounds of the animal economy and start to do something new. Because it's so central, to everything that I'm thinking about, it's actually really hard for me to boil it down into a single question. So while this might be the easiest question for me to answer if it gets posed to me on the exam, it's actually the hardest one for me to make a podcast about because there's just so much of it. I have four questions that I've, I've written up, and again, if you are at all an expert in this, uh, or just somebody who cares about this sort of thing, and if you have a better question for me, shoot me an email or a tweet. You can tweet at me at at MackieTeacher and give me that question, and I might answer it on a show. So here's my four questions. When did the Industrial Revolution take place? What was the leading sector of the Industrial Revolution? Here's a, a dummy one. What caused the Industrial Revolution? But here's the one that I'm going to, to answer today. How revolutionary was the Industrial Revolution? To answer this, I'm going to talk about three different ways that people think that the Industrial Revolution was a distinctive revolution and discuss problems with each. Then I'm going to tell about my a pitch for why the Industrial Revolution was distinctive by looking mainly at cheap energy. First, let's talk about economic change in the Industrial Revolution. The old story of the Industrial Revolution was that sometime in the middle of the 18th century, because there was a nation of genius inventors who were mess messing around with machines, there was a new way of making things that started in Britain. 
this new way of making things was dominated by machines and factories, and it caused an explosion of economic growth. Um, David Landis, who might uh, be the best poster child for this technologically driven industrial revolution, calls it takeoff, industrial takeoff. You get a slow build-off of uh, resources and ideas and capital, which means machines and factories, that all of a sudden reaches a critical mass and lifts the economy up into modernity where it will never fall down again. We can think of this story in terms of advances in particular industries. If we told the story about the cotton industry, we might talk about uh, early printing, but really what we would talk about is the leapfrogging set of inventions that increase the speed of weaving and spinning. These are things like the cotton gin, the water frame, the spinning jenny. All of these uh, machines built one on top of the other to make cotton manufacturing increasingly inexpensive. We could also talk about the same process in other industries. Uh, an interesting one from the organizational standpoint might be Josiah Wedgwood's potteries, which were uh, made both increasingly on a pattern of what we might think of as research and development. Uh, Wedgwood would mess around with different mixtures, with different clays, with different temperatures to try to get the thing that he was looking for and combining this with factory production methods where all of the workers would go to produce this stuff in one central factory so that they could be better supervised and trained in these new methods that Wedgwood was producing. We could also talk about Bolton and Watts iron factories. There's a lot of industries that we could pinpoint to talk about how this industrial change produced an economic change. It's kind of helpful because all of these things happened in a similar region of the Midlands and the North and often involved similar people who were sharing similar ideas. So you can definitely get a sense of a concerted effort, a bunch of revolutionaries, and the mechanism by which their revolution happened. There is one big problem with this story though, and that problem is that the takeoff never happened. David Landis's uh, uh, industrial takeoff story uh, is based on estimates of increases of industrial production that have since the 1980s come under increasing fire and are now, you know, totally not the accepted wisdom of the field. Uh, the big names here are Dean and Cole, who made the original estimates, and then Crafts and Hartley, who are the uh, harbingers of the new orthodoxy. The new orthodoxy says that industrial production did not go through a takeoff, that instead there was an increase in production, but it was very slow. It started much earlier. Uh, recent estimates, the most recent that I can find, suggest that this increase in industrial output starts not in 1780, but in 1470, leading to very slow but steady and incremental increases all the way up to 1820. After 1820, then you see a change in magnitude of industrial production. But before then, it's the same slow and steady increase that people expect from this entire very long period. 
This obviously poses a bunch of problems for the old story of the Industrial Revolution as a technologically driven um, boost to production. It pushes the date back of that uh, expansion much further, out of the 18th century and into the 19th century. And it suggests another uh, 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 partner process of some kind of slow economic growth. So another way that we can take aim at this technologically driven story of the Industrial Revolution is to look at what actually changed with the Industrial Revolution. The old technological uh, stories of the Industrial Revolution would talk about cotton, coal, uh, ironworks, Wedgwood's China factories, and they would discuss about how these new uh, pushes of mechanized uh, 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 labor created new ways of producing and consuming things, new ways of working like factories, new kinds of stores like department stores. From reading these stories, you'd get the sense that the entire island was swept by a wave of gadgets in the middle of the 18th century, and every single job changed irrevocably. However, that really overstates the actual impact of the leading sectors of the Industrial Revolution on the working lives of people and on the production of most goods. Even in the leading sectors of the Industrial Revolution, early mechanization was used only for the poorest quality goods. In the cotton industry, hand-woven and hand-spun cotton was still superior to machine-made cotton at the highest grades of workmanship. It was only for the crummy stuff that people used machines. You could tell a similar story for lace making or uh, stocking sewing or anything, even iron making. The iron that was made with coal and the uh, rolling and puddling process was of a much lower quality than other kinds of iron. It was useful only for certain amounts of things. It wasn't until much later that mechanization was able to produce quality goods. And furthermore, the Industrial sectors of the economy were relatively small compared with uh, other sectors of the economy. In 1850, the biggest sector of the economy remained agriculture. Second was probably building trades, which were done uh, mostly small scale. Then you get domestic service. These are what most people are doing. The factories are a, a, an important but relatively small sector of people actually working. A way that we uh, can examine this is through looking at a moment in time that has often been held up as the pinnacle of the Industrial Revolution, the 1851 um, uh, Crystal Palace Exhibition in London. And this is a massive World's Fair uh, showing all of the riches of the Industrial Revolution. It has uh, things from every country, massive machines, steam engines, everything. But the actual building itself, the Crystal Palace building itself, uh, this monument of uh, iron and glass, was made by craft production, made by people working with their hands. The glass was blown by hand, the iron was hit by hand, and even within the, uh, the Great Exhibition, many of the uh, actual uh, goods were still made by hand. It's not until the 1870s, the 1880s, maybe even the 1890s that we can say that industrial production actually becomes the dominant mode of production in British industry. Finally, there's another related strand to the Industrial Revolution that suggests that 
the distinctiveness of the Industrial Revolution doesn't just come from the great inventions, but it comes from the particular kinds of political and legal institutions that were set up that allowed the capital accumulation necessary to actually grow. So to make that sound a lot simpler, instead of saying that machines were the real thing, like good Whigs, they said that it was the glorious revolution. That it was this moment in 1688 where you get a balanced government that has a lot of oversight and a actual active representative body. And this is important um, for institutional econom uh, economists like Douglas North because it allows people to accumulate goods without worrying that they're going to have the state come and take them. These are the real important preconditions for the Industrial Revolution. Once you have that, then almost inevitably, the Industrial Revolution comes as a result of the accumulation of capital. Um, there's a related view of this that kind of combines the institutional and the technological approaches which we see in Joel Moikir. And this is that Britain had a, a particular kind of civil society that was especially uh, generative of scientific ideas that could be used in industry. This is the industrial enlightenment. The idea that there are certain kinds of ways of doing things that happen in Britain that make uh, uh, people who are making stuff far more receptive to new ideas, which then leads to things like these, you know, spinning jenny. The problem with this approach is not that it's not true, but it's that it's true in a lot of places. Uh, the big person here is Kenneth Pomerantz, uh, who makes us point out that even though the British Isles in the 18th century certainly were very special, they weren't distinctive. There were lots of areas of the world in lots of different times when you had beneficial institutional regimes that would, you know, protect private property and groups of people studying scientific uh, knowledge and people making inventions. There's lots of periods of time like that. Uh, he focuses specifically on the Yangtze Delta in the 18th century, but we can point out uh, uh, many, uh, the Roman Empire, for instance. What the Pomerantz argument does is it pushes the institutionalists uh, uh, further in their explanation. They don't just have to argue why Britain's institutions helped out with the Industrial Revolution, they have to argue why Britain's institutions helped out with the Industrial Revolution there and not everywhere else. And it's hard to see how they can justify that without adding in another kind of cause. So to sum up, I've uh, uh, brought up three big ways that the Industrial Revolution has been explained, and I found all of them wanting. One of them is a uh, uh, increase in economic growth, which I've suggested is actually far slower and far weirder than people have previously suggested. The second is the uh, uh, primacy of technologically driven industrial growth, in particular leading sectors. And I've said that that is also not appropriate because these leading sectors uh, did not actually change the entire economy in the period of time that we think of as the Industrial Revolution. The third uh, view is that particular kinds of beneficial institutions allowed for there to be an accumulation of capital, which in turn uh, led to the Industrial Revolution. And this is wanting because we can find similar kinds of situations in other countries at other times that do not lead to the Industrial Revolution. 
So I'm now going to argue about why I think that the Industrial Revolution is distinctive. Because listening to me, you probably think, well, the Industrial Revolution doesn't exist, right? But I totally think that it does exist, and I think that it is incredibly important, maybe even more important than all of the people who I've been talking about think. For me, the Industrial Revolution is primarily a story of cheap energy. This allows us to do a couple things. First, it allows us to connect the story of the Industrial Revolution as being driven by technology with earlier developments that we can see beginning much, you know, much earlier. That's why they're earlier developments. Um, primary to this is thinking about where energy comes from. And before we even touch coal, which is the obvious cheap energy source, before we even touch that, we have to recognize that uh, overseas imperialism that Britain is increasingly involved in is another source of cheap energy. You get slaves working beyond the shores of Britain, making crops for Britain, and that allows people to get more energy for less effort. The big one, of course, is coal, uh, which starts to get used in uh, British heating sometime around the 15th century. It's used in houses uh, to heat uh, uh, things during winter when there's not enough wood to go around. And slowly, the trade in coal increases and it's used by an increasing number of people, but it isn't until the beginning of the 18th century that it's actually used in steam engines that allow the heat of the coal to be turned into work. And it isn't until uh, uh, Watt, who uh, creates a new kind of steam engine that can turn that energy into rotary motion, into motion that can turn a gear, and that's when we start to get a lot of interesting developments. But it's not just rotary motion that makes the Industrial Revolution. It's all of cheap energy. And from that perspective, we don't just look at the machines of the cotton factories, but we look at all the things that cheap coal allows people to do. It allows people to make cheaper raw materials. Bricks, salt, iron, glass, all of these require intensive energy inputs. And with the decreasing cost of coal, they all become increasingly cheaper. As you get these raw materials cheaper, then the story of the uh, uh, Crystal Palace exhibition stops being one that looks uh, 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 athwart the big story of the Industrial Revolution. That iron and that glass that the Crystal Palace is built out of, it might have been built by hand, but it was built using coal. Furthermore, you get the development of new transport options, which also decreases the cost of energy, uh, an increase in raw power available. A lot of people who dispute my um, energy forward view of the Industrial Revolution suggest that there's other energy sources out there uh, that could have done similar things to coal, that, that putting the big onus on the discovery and use of coal inputs is kind of telling the story backwards. But the problem with those is that most of those energy inputs cannot produce the raw power of coal. You can't get earth digging machines from water wheels, for example. Also, these new sources of energy are more regular, allowing people to make more planning about how they actually make stuff. This growth then is energy and capital intensive rather than labor intensive. But I look in this view of the Industrial Revolution not just at the machines, not just at the factories, but at the raw materials that are going in there. And from that perspective, it looks like the Industrial Revolution is a revolution in energy. 
This is concerning, because all of those other explanations for the Industrial Revolution seem to be about inborn qualities of Western civilization. The technological uh, uh, story shows how particular British geniuses produced by uh, good schools, having you know good instincts, create technology that changes the world. And as long as we have those instincts, we will be able to continue changing the world. The institutional story says that uh, political institutions create the uh, groundwork for massive economic change. As long as we protect those political institutions, our economics will be good. My view is much more pessimistic. As long as we have cheap energy, we can keep on doing these things. We can keep on having modernity. But the cheap energy is not renewable. It comes from a fixed source. We are going to run out of coal. We're going to run out of oil. We're going to run out of natural gas. And it's not a story of if we're going to run out of these. It's a story of when. And if we do not find renewable sources of cheap energy before that date, modernity will crumble. Even if we have genius inventors, even if we still have democracy and liberal government and uh, property rights, it relies on something that's outside of human control, that is, that is alien to us, these high-energy bits of rocks. And that's what makes this a new world, that the introduction of cheap energy to the natural rhythms of life change far more um, than simple machines ever could. Thanks very much for listening to this story of Making of a Historian. Thanks to Jonathan Lear for the music. Find his SoundCloud page. Find his Bandcamp page. Give him money. And thank you to Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes. Share us on social media. Tweet to me at at MackieTeacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-E-A-C-H-E-R. If you tweet me a question, I might answer it on the show. Um, thanks very much for listening, and I will speak to you later this afternoon.